Our scripture for this morning is from Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about for things. In college, she actually majored in both business administration and fashion merchandising. And for her senior thesis, she did something really interesting, where she was uh, studying and researching about affordable wedding dresses and how to make uh, wedding dresses available for folks who had a harder time being able to, to find something that would work for their budgets. Um, and one of the interesting findings that she found during the whole time is that a lot of dresses that uh, are on the market as wedding dresses the same exact material and design uh, as other dresses that are just different colors, that are not white. And yet, because they are white, they are remarkably more expensive. Um, it, it shouldn't be that, that way, but the, uh, by all means, it should be relatively the same price. But because they are wedding dresses, they are way more expensive. The interesting part of the psychology of that as well, though, is that uh, for most People, as they, as they found when they were looking for a wedding dress, they wanted to spend more money on uh, their dress because the perception was, this is the most important part of my wedding day. I want this to be something really valuable. I don't want to skimp on this. I don't want it to be something cheap. So even if it was something that was exactly uh, what they would have wanted, the right material, the right design and everything, they might have gone for something more expensive just because uh, they wanted it to be uh, the best that they could possibly get. Sometimes our desire for things to feel valuable can actually distort our ability to tell its actual value. This is perhaps why people really like the idea that God wants us to have health and wealth, right? But are often uncomfortable with a gospel that asks us to humble ourselves, to repent, to love our enemies, to endure through hardship. They're hard sells for some people. Jesus' message of salvation that promises something true and real 
a life that is truly freed from the grip of sin and death. It promises real, eternal life. But it doesn't promise a life that is impressive by most earthly standards. So it can be difficult for some people to receive. We are in the third week now of a, uh, a series where we're looking through the, the major teaching, teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew. We have, uh, we're reflecting not just on you know, what he taught in small uh, snippets, we often do that uh, in messages, but trying to look at the teachings of a whole and also how he taught as well. Uh, we've read about the Sermon on the Mount in the first week. Last week, we explored Jesus' teachings to the disciples preparing for outreach. And the chapters that follow that sending, Matthew begins recording how Jesus is getting a mixed reception in his ministry. We've read some of it in the uh, passage that Phyllis just read for us. There's plenty of people receiving him with joy and with trust. Droves of people searching for him so they can be healed. There's also a growing number of people that are pretty skeptical of him. In particular, some of the religious leaders who want nothing to do with him, they're not really convinced, uh, convinced that his message is true. There might be some trickery behind what he's doing, right? Uh, he's technically doing all the things the prophets said the Messiah would do, but just doesn't look like they thought it would look. And it's causing some waves and some concern. Even his own family, by the end of chapter 12, thinks that he's crazy. And so they're coming to get him. In response, Jesus starts sharing a bunch of parables. They're wonderful and they're weird. We're going to talk about a few of them today. I don't have any slides for us this morning other than pictures. So these are some of the parables, uh, images that kind of go along with some of the parables that he shares this morning. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to turn there this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we explore your teachings, your word, would you do your spirit enlighten us to hear and receive what you have for us? Lord, through my own uh, broken lips and uh, uh, inability, would you uh, use what I offer today to be edifying for your church? So, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him. He got into a boat and sat in it, and while all the people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables. Saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. So other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever had ears to hear, let them hear. Now we benefit from hindsight here, uh, especially from Matthew's gospel, because Jesus later gives the disciples an interpretation of the parable. So the first crowd, they only heard the parable. That, and they had to reflect on that themselves. The disciples later ask about it, and Matthew records the interpretation for us. Jesus shares with them that the seed is like the message of the kingdom, that the enemy is like the bird that comes to snatch up the teaching before it can take root. The rocky soil, like a person who doesn't let the teaching take root. The thorns are like troubles and temptations that uh, we let distract us from the kingdom. But the good soil is like the person who pursues uh, or, uh, who prepares themselves, really lets the teaching of God take hold in their life. 
Jesus is basically beginning this block teaching of parables with a parable about parables, right? He says, God is radically generous in sharing the good news, but not everyone will accept it. Because of that fact, Jesus speaks in parables that are simultaneously helpful, but also confusing. He uses simple language, examples that can be accessible to people to convey truth, things that draw on their everyday life. But the comparisons also tend to have some strange elements that leave people kind of scratching their heads as they are listening. So all the folks listening in the crowd, they would have been able to relate to stories about farmers and seed. They might have also been a bit distracted by how strange the farmer's behavior is. I mean, the, the guy in the parable of the sower, he's wasting seed, right? He's throwing seed everywhere on all the different types of soil. It seems like he should maybe be a little more discerning in where he is planting these seeds. And it's obviously not going to grow on the rough paths, right? Or when there's rocky soil or thorn bushes. But if you sit with the parable long enough, you make the connection between the seed and the message of Jesus, you see just how important, beautiful it is. Jesus would share good news with even those to whom they might have no chance of taking root. But he's telling us, like done it, fill up your soil so that you can be more like the good soil. Every other parable that Jesus teaches in this chapter, I feel like it builds off that core concept. He goes on to talk about wheats, or wheat and weeds. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you plant good seed in your field? Where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may have rooted the wheat with them. Both of them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Another strange image here, right? And what kind of weird prankster goes into a big field and just sows weeds. That's kind of a weird thing to do. But again, Jesus is kind enough to give us an interpretation here. He says the seed this time is not just the message of the kingdom, but it's also those who receive it. The weeds are all those who are deceived. The field is the world. The harvest then is the judgment day, where angels will finally sort out those who have rejected salvation so that God's people can dwell in a whole and restored world without sin, without death, without brokenness. Picking up again on the seed imagery, Jesus continues and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he planted in his field. I know it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree that the birds come and perch in its branches. This one is interesting for a few reasons. I think I've given a whole longer sermon on this one before, but uh, it's one interesting because mustard plants were particularly well-liked by people at that time. The variety that grew in the Mediterranean was a weedy plant, much more like a large sprawling bush than an actual tree. And also the mention of birds perching in its branches, it seems like a reference to the prophets speaking of Israel becoming strong and mighty like a tree to which all the nations would come to for shelter. So essentially it seems like Jesus is saying, He's taken this, this prophetic vision of Israel's hope, and he's going to put it to this kind of weedy bush 
plan um, that nobody seems to, to like that much. I guess to clarify then, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed to about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Patient weren't aware, 60 pounds of flour is a lot of flour. Right? That is a lot of bread. Uh, the whole lot of dough for that little bit of yeast to work through, but it does. It says it does the work. And in the same way, the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, it may seem small and unassuming, like a mustard seed or like yeast. And yet it grows and it swells into something that transforms not only the individual, but the whole world as well. Jesus then, he switches tracks to talk about the value of the kingdom as well. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then, in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, on first glance, these parables don't seem all that complicated. The kingdom of heaven is something valuable. We should treasure it. But if we look a little bit deeper, might scratch your head a little bit. This guy had to buy the field, which means it wasn't his field before. So why is he digging around it? That seems kind of shady to me. Like he's just in some random person's field digging around until he finds some treasure. And then if he, if he was already messing around in this field uh, and the owner didn't know about the treasure, why didn't he just take it? Right? The owner didn't know. But instead he does this weird thing where he, he buries it, he goes, sells everything he has so he can buy the field and then also have the treasure. This, the second parable is a little more straightforward. The merchant already knows what he's looking for, right? But apparently the pearl that he comes across is way more valuable than he was even expecting to find. So valuable that he had to go and sell everything he had just so he could have this one pearl. So, we have a shady guy who stumbles across a treasure he wasn't aware of. Businessman who comes across a pearl so valuable he couldn't have even anticipated his existence. Both have the same kind of reaction. They're so overtaken by the sheer value of what they found that they sell everything they have to attain it. This is what it's like for those who stumble across the incredible value of the kingdom. Whether it's someone who's a complete heathen who has never heard of God at all, uh, somehow stumbles into God's grace, or someone who's been a lifetime churchgoer or, or about this faith thing for a, lo a long time, and yet they finally have it click to them in a way that seems more real. For both of them, when it comes face to face with a profound gift, a half-hearted reaction seems impossible. They have to do something to obtain it. And yet, there are still some who will never fully see and receive it because their hearts are too hardened. They've shut their eyes and their ears to God. They just don't want to find it. Jesus continues on to say, unfortunately, there will come an end his patience. He talks about the net and fish. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down to the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. They sat down. They collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. 
And again, Jesus gives an interpretation. He says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same like the wheat and the weeds here, Jesus is reminding us that there is patience and hope for people to come to repentance. Time will eventually run out. The blazing furnace and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth part can seem kind of excessive, right? Those are pretty visceral images that are given here. There's two important things about those images uh, that communicate a message about judgment um, that we need to understand. First, we have the image of the blazing furnace, the place where a lot of burning and fire happens, rightly, generally by burning of expendable fuels. The second is the, that weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, you may be aware in the Gospels, Jesus will usually associate the idea uh, of hell and, and judgment in reference to from the Valley of Gehenna, area in Israel that had become kind of like the regional trash dump. There, there was so much waste there; they would have continual fires that they would burn to manage the waste. And so there were also like maggots and worms and dogs fighting over things. The yelping and gnashing of teeth, kind of referring to that idea. These are very visceral images to communicate. Um, this, this kind of sobering idea that Jesus is comparing to here. The things that are thrown into the furnace and the trash heap are those which are found to be unfruitful, damaging, generally useless. And when you think about it, there's not much malice that's given whenever you're like working on a garden and you're dealing with like weeds or things that you're trying to, to get rid of. Uh, or when, if you were sorting through fish, I don't have much experience doing that. If you found a, a bad fish or something that's smelly, I wouldn't feel any particular way about getting rid of it, right? You're just sorting through that. Uh, and that's actually what's a little bit more sobering to me, is that it's kind of detached and matter-of-fact, casting aside of ne- unnecessary waste to make way for the new. This is a difficult concept, too. I, I was talking with someone uh, about this last week about... Uh, they were asking questions about uh, hell and about God's judgment. And they had a lot of questions around that. And as we were discussing it, it's like, wait, kind of, we have all these questions about the what. What is that supposed to be like? I think sometimes the more interesting question is the why. Why would there be something like judgment? Or even kind of maybe a step before that, why would there, why would God have created a humanity for which there might be an ending place either way uh, of judgment or, or not judgment. If we, if we think of the, uh, the whole situation as it being just like humans were made solely to honor and to please God, and they have a choice whether to do that or not. And so one choice is to say yes, and then they get this eternal reward. And one choice is to say no, and they get eternal punishment. It's not really a choice, right? Um, but if we think... God made humanity for a purpose. God made humanity as his image in the world to steward, to create, to do good, to to do something purposeful. And instead, humanity chose selfishness or destruction. It makes a little more sense that there would be uh, some, some judgment that would need to be taken. If there's an idea of what the good fruit is to be grown up into, and what spoiled or, 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 or destructive is, then it makes more sense that there would be a sorting out. 
Friends, Jesus has already told us and proved with his life that he loves us. He wants us to be restored, uh, to be whole, to be with him, to be uh, within the branch, producing good fruit. He's made a way for that to happen for all of us. But if we aren't rooted and growing in him, we're risking becoming like chaff, like a stinking eel and a catch of fish. We have every opportunity to receive Jesus and his teaching like the seed in good soil. We can let it grow and multiply unexpectedly like a mustard plant or like yeast and dough. We can cherish the gift like hidden treasure or priceless pearl. We can be transformed by the Spirit so that we're healthy wheat and good fish. But if we're not careful and not attentive, that seed won't take root. It won't grow. It won't multiply. We might walk right by the most valuable gift in the world, completely unaware. And in the end, we could risk being cast aside because all we cared about was ourselves rather than caring about accepting what God has offered to us. What will we choose? Jesus concludes all of this with another pseudo-parable at the end. He asks them, have you understood all of these things? And they say, yes. I don't know that I would have replied yes in that moment. But they say, yes, we understood it. He says, good. Everyone who knows and teaches God's law and becomes my disciples is like a homeowner who can show off both old and new treasures from their storeroom. You'll find that there's always something new to share. I pray that that can be true of all of us today. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we know that we are limited, often by our, our own uh, brokenness, woundedness, self-centeredness, we get distracted, difficult for us to truly see and know and comprehend you. You are, while you have revealed yourself to us, you are still holy other. We thank you that you have in your generosity and patience love revealed yourself to us all of the ways lord in which we are like we're groping around in the dark we pray that you might help us to see your light to receive not to blind ourselves unnecessarily but to open our eyes and our ears that we might see and in the ways in which we are incapable ourselves would you help us to be reborn Powered by your spirit that we can see. We pray for more of you. You are the author and finisher of our faith. You are the way, the truth, and the life. More of you. Amen.